Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to be focusing on the life of Jonah, perhaps one of the most famous stories in the Bible. Many of us might have think of Jonah and the whale. Not sure that that's right, Mike. We'll find out in a minute. <laughs> but uh, I guess the story of Jonah is found in the book of Jonah. But Jonah was, what, a prophet. Now, just explain what that means and, and at what time in history we're we talking about. Yeah, he's a prophet. Now, we often think of prophets as being people who tell the future. But actually, that was a really small part of the ministry of a prophet in the Old Testament. By far the biggest role of the prophet was to call both king and nation back to living by the word of God. So we'll find much of their work throughout all of the prophets is a challenging people with them not living in accordance with God's law. So one of Jonah's responsibilities as a prophet would have been to remind of God's word, both as it encourages and as it challenges. To encourage, to remind God's people they were indeed the people God had chosen to carry out a purpose in the earth, but, but to challenge them whenever they didn't. So John is one of a number of prophets that we'll be looking at in coming episodes. Where does he fit? Well, he fits in the northern nation of Israel. Now, we said in previous episodes, after the death of King Solomon, the nation split into two mm -hmm. through the stupidity of his son. Ten tribes broke away from the north, not led by a Davidic ruler, and that was called Israel. Two tribes to the south called Judah. And Jonah was a prophet who both lived and worked in that northern kingdom of Israel. He lived around 793 to 753 BC, and that puts him in the reign of King Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was a, he was a, economically and politically a, a pretty good king, spiritually not there. But he really worked hard and took advantage of temporary weakness on the international scene to restore Israel's boundary and to, to make it great again. In fact, there's a, a reference in 2 Kings 14 that says how Jeroboam restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word that the Lord had spoken through Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hepha, this guy. <laughs> so even before we meet him in this story, we discover he's been giving the king a word of direction and encouragement here. And what that does, by the way, in passing, is underline that Jonah was a real historical figure. He's there in the history books, taking part in the life of the nation. Because the story is so familiar, you, you would think it was a fairy story. It would be very easy to think that, wouldn't it? Especially because of what happens. Now, I need to be honest and to say that scholars take two different approaches. There are some people who think this is a literal, historical story that... Jonah really did get swallowed by some great fish. There are others, still Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, 
who think that wasn't its original purpose, that it was told around a real historical figure, but it was a parable, a picture, to get across a message to the people of those days. You'll have to choose which you go for. His purpose in life, though, Jonas, was to be, if you like, a spokesman for God. And that was the essence of what a prophet was, wasn't it? Whether, as I've said, reminding them of what God had told them to do and how they should live, whether bringing God's direction, a spokesman for God. And up to this point in his life, oh yeah, he'd been quite content with that, thank you very much. Probably had a reasonable life there in the North. Life in the North was pretty good. It was uh, pretty affluent, as we learn from some of the other prophets like Amos. And uh, he he was probably living an okay life, just very content with bringing the occasional word of encouragement to, to the king. Um, but it was only when God gave him a pretty tough word that he decided he didn't want to be a prophet after all. I was to say, to be a spokesman for God, you've got to hear what God is saying. So he hears something not quite to his liking? He hears something not quite to his liking. And uh, what it is, is that he is to go to Nineveh which was one of the key cities of this mighty empire that was growing to the east called Assyria. And not only is he to go there, I mean, to go there and tell them they're all a bunch of sinners might have been one thing, but he's to go there and preach about their wickedness. Yeah, okay, God, I could do that. But as the story unfolds, we'll discover he really doesn't like what he knows is in God's heart and what comes out in the story that not only should he challenge them with their wickedness, but he gives them opportunity to repent and turn to God. And he wasn't very keen on that because, I mean, these were nasty Assyrians. So he wanted them to have their comeuppance. Absolutely. And one can understand why, by the way. Um, Assyrians were really well known for their brutal use of power. Um it was a mighty empire that was growing up there in that Iran-Iraq area. They were becoming a huge regional power. And by the time of Jonah, they'd become sort of fearsome warriors and uh, power-hungry expansionists. They were out to build a really good empire. They were incredibly cultured at one level. Archaeology shows us some of their amazing artefacts and palaces but they were also incredibly brutal in warfare. They used to inflict the most horrible things upon people that they were fighting against. Used to deport a lot. Scholars estimate that they probably deported four million people um, during the time of their nation. And four million in those days was, was huge. Uh, they used to impose really heavy tributes on people that they had conquered. And so Jonah really was not very in favour of Assyria at all, as nobody else would have been in Israel or Judah at that time. But God tells them to go to Nineveh. Where does he go? Well, he goes in the opposite direction. <laughs> you know, in some ways, even that going to Nineveh, okay, he, he didn't like them, but it wasn't as if he wasn't familiar with non-Israelites. Um, the Bible tells us he actually came from a place called Gathhepha in Zebulun, 
which is like in central Galilee area today, just three miles north of Nazareth in our modern terminology. And that area was pretty well known for having quite a number of immigrants anyway. So he's grown up with people other than Israelites. He, it's not like he's lived in a little cocoon, but Jonah had grown up in what we might call a pretty multicultural area, but he hated these. So when God said, go east, young man, um, Jonah decided, like you said, to run in completely the opposite direction. But going west from <laughs> where he was uh, wouldn't have taken very far, would it? It wouldn't. What he did was he, he got as far as the coast and uh, he found a boat there in uh, Joppa, that's modern-day Jaffa, and uh, you can imagine him walking round the docks, you know, saying, where are you going, where are you going? He wants to go as far as he can. And eventually he finds a boat going to a place called Tarshish. We're not 100% sure where that was, but most scholars think it was somewhere in Spain. In other words, the end of the earth, as far as they were concerned in those days, the opposite end of the Mediterranean. God says, go east. Jonah says, nope, I am going west. Pays his fare, jumps on a boat, and thinks that he has escaped from the call of God on his life. Do we sometimes do that, go in exactly the opposite direction to where we should be going? Oh, I think we've all probably had experiences of that, haven't we? When we've known God saying something to us, knowing that he wants us to do something, and we go and do exactly the opposite, either because we're afraid or because of our preconceived notions. Was there a bit of fear in Jonah? Possibly. He knew what the Assyrians were like. But I think deep down, he, he just didn't like Assyrians. It was as simple as that. And it was, no, Lord, I really don't like these people. And I think we can have, David, you're right, the equivalent where we say, no, no, I don't want to do that, Lord. That would be too uncomfortable. Can you run away from God? Well, Jonah discovered the answer to that is a most definite no. And it doesn't matter how far you try to run, God has a way of catching up with you. Many years ago, when I did my first degree, I spent a year teaching in France. And there was another English teacher in the school with me who had come from Australia, the other side of the world. And she had come there to run away from God. And where did God put her? In the same school with me as a Christian. And she had to spend the whole year listening to my stories and went back to Australia with the God she tried to run away from. <laughs> now, Jonah discovered that lesson a little earlier. He sets off, and as those of you who know the story will know, God sends a great wind. Interesting, the text says God sent a great wind, not just it got windy. There's this great storm arises. The ship's about to break up. They try and put ropes around it to lash it and bind it together. But it just gets worse. Meanwhile, what is the man of God doing? You know, interceding? No, no. He's gone below deck, it says, and fallen into a deep sleep. And it eventually takes the captain to come down to him to say, wake up, wake up, wake up. Come on. We're all praying. You pray to your God. Maybe your God will take notice of us and then 
the sailors cast lots to think well there must be some there must be some reason why this has come to us suddenly out of the blue let's try and find out who it is and they cast lots a way of finding out who was responsible and they cast the lots and it falls on Jonah and so they say who are you you know what are you doing to have brought all this and I love this bit he says I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the land and suddenly he's he's gone all religious and doesn't see the stupidity and the incongruity of what he've just said I am one who worships the God of the earth and the sea and I'm running away from a place that this God of the whole earth wants to send me to. And because the sea is getting rougher and rougher, they say, what shall we do? And Jonah says, well, I think the only thing you can do is throw me into the sea as a sort of peace offering. Interesting that these pagan sailors don't do that at first. They think, no, we'll keep trying. We'll keep trying. But eventually it's clear that the storm is not going to stop. And so they do what Jonah said. They took him, they throw him overboard, and guess what? The raging sea grew calm. Man, you know, that must have been pretty scary Mm. for everybody. Mm. For Jonah, definitely, because he's going under the waters now. But for the sailors to understand at that very moment, the storm had stopped, and Jonah is thrown overboard. So as far as they're concerned, he's responsible. He's clearly responsible because the storm has stopped. And, of course, they were right. In a sense, he was responsible. And one of the things that the story of Jonah brings out to us is that, you know, God does not mind disturbing our comfort to get our attention. There are lots of stories in the Bible where God disturbs our comfort to try and get our attention. Maybe even some listeners today We'll just be feeling in some difficult, uncomfortable circumstances. And I'd ask them, have you stopped? And that is this God trying to get your attention? You know, it might not be a case of binding up all these demons and blaming everyone. Is God trying to say something through the circumstances you are in? That was certainly the case in this story. This is the point where Jonah ends up in the belly of, well, I thought it was a whale. Yes, and it isn't. (laughs) But the trouble is, all the children's Bibles have pictures of whales, don't they? Why is that? Well, I think for one of the reasons is that's just become tradition. And, And again, some of the early English translations of the Bible, it was translated as a whale. What the Hebrew actually says here is that God appointed a great fish. Notice there, God appointed a great fish. God sent a great fish. God sent the storm. God sent the fish. Hmm. So it might have been a whale, but it's certainly a great fish of some kind or other that comes and sent by God swallows up Jonah. And he's in the belly of this great fish for, for, for three days. There's obviously significance in that. He is. He's there for three days. And it's while he's there inside the fish that he realises God is after his attention. You know, in my own life, there are times when things have gone wrong, when I've suddenly realised God's got my attention through the situation. 
that he's put me in. You know, we shouldn't just dismiss our situations as one of those things. And suddenly he realises it's God who's put him there. And there, in chapter 2, we get this beautiful poem, this beautiful song that's sung out that presumably sums up what he was feeling. And it talks about, you know, from the depths of the sea, I cried to the Lord. And it describes in graphic terms his experience of sort of going down through the waters and then being scooped up within this fish. And then when his life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. Interesting, when my life was ebbing away, sometimes it's when stuff gets really tough and we have nowhere else to go, that God has cornered us and we turn to him. And then he ends up that hymn saying, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. That's really powerful. You know, with God, there is always grace available to us. Sometimes we forfeit it through our own stupidity, through our own running away. And he goes on to say, with songs of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you. And I vowed, what I vowed, I will make good. And here's the turning point. The very last line of his song in chapter two, he declares, salvation comes from the Lord alone. It's like he's seen it. And at that point, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Funny, it said that three days earlier. <laughs> but instead, he spent three days in. Why three days? Well, he was clearly dumb and it took him that long to get there. Of course, the New Testament will pick up on the picture, won't it? I was going to say, doesn't Jesus himself refer to Jonah and the three days and compares that to his own situation? Exactly. Which, again, is a reason for perhaps seeing this as a historical story. And indeed, Jesus will say, just as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the earth three days and three nights. So this story will have uh, a much deeper and fuller meaning by the time it gets to New Testament times. But here in this story... I think it was three days of stupidity and stubbornness till he got to that point of saying, okay, God, salvation belongs to you. And of course, the whole point of that was the salvation was not just the salvation that he needed to get out of the whale. It was the salvation that God wanted to give, even to the people that he hated. And does that sense of the penny dropping apply so many times to us, even today? suddenly we see the truth of something that we hadn't seen before. Absolutely. And the grace and the kindness of God is that he doesn't say, well, I'm not going to do it now for you. But the grace and kindness of God is so rich that when the penny does eventually drop, there's God saying, okay, good, at last, let's move on now, which is exactly what he does with Jonah. So Nineveh, here we come. Nineveh, here we come. So in chapter three, it starts with um, the Bible saying that the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Go to Nineveh, the great city of Nineveh, and deliver the message that I've given you. Interesting. It's exactly the same message as the first time, isn't it? Here's the kindness of God again, saying the same thing to us again that he said before. It's not different. It's not changed. It's 
Have you learnt your lesson, Jonah? Okay. Now, what I said was, go to Nineveh and go and deliver that message that I've given you. And this time, Jonah went. He could have, God could have, you know, chosen somebody else. But he's determined, by the sound of it, to stick with Jonah. Absolutely. Isn't this what God is like? I mean, actually, God needs nobody, does he? God, God could just have clicked his fingers in heaven and the whole of Nineveh could have repented. God could have said, Jonah, you've had your chance, that's it. I'm going to call someone else. But now he pursues us relentlessly. I love the relentless way that God's love and call pursues our life. The way he doesn't give up on us. Again, the Bible has so many stories of people who, who messed up, who missed out. Think of Peter in the New Testament who denied Jesus three times. And yet in John 21, we find Jesus asking him three times. It all comes down to this, Peter, do you love me? If you do, go and do what I'm telling you to do. And he gives him a new opportunity. And still today, for any of us listening today who feel we missed out on doing what God said to us and we know we were disobedient, it is never too late for us to say salvation comes from the Lord. Lord, I'm sorry, I'll got it wrong. I'll do it. And there's always hope for God using us, renewing the situation, sending us out and making us useful again for him, just like he did with Jonah. So eventually he gets to Nineveh and what happens? Well, he goes to Nineveh and chapter three tells us a, a little bit of, about Nineveh. It says Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now, that's a, a pretty big city. Uh, in those days, it stood on the banks of the river Tigris. It had been established by Nimrod, one of the descendants of Noah's son, Ham. And uh, it had been around 700 BC. Sennacherib would eventually make it the capital. But it was a growing city. It wasn't the capital yet, but a really significant city that would uh, become very important in the history of that part of the world, a very uh, glamorous City. So he goes to this huge city, three-day journey to get from one side to the other. And as he gets there, he starts preaching on day one. He doesn't wait till day three. I think he's learned his lesson now. <laughs> Just get on with it. On the first day, he started to proclaim, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. So in other words, he's giving them God's work. 40 days, lads, to sort your lives out. And if not, this city is going to be overturned. Now, in his heart, what Jonah wanted God to say was 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned full stop. But what he didn't really understand yet was that what God really was saying was 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned semicolon. But if you repent, things can be different <laughs> with God. There's always a semicolon in a sentence. So Jonah wanted them to have their comeuppance. God wanted them to have a second chance. Absolutely. And as we read on in chapter three, we find that the Ninevites believe God. They declared a fast, all of them, from greatest to least, and put on sackcloth. And then news reaches the king of Nineveh of something that's going on. 
And when the news gets to him, rather than saying, that's enough, that's enough, we've got our own gods, thank you very much, the king himself repents in sackcloth and ashes as well. And he issues a decree to the whole city and nation that everyone else is to repent and ends up his decree with the words, who knows, God may yet repent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. It's not being presumptuous, but he's saying, guys, if we just turn in our hearts to the living God, maybe God would relent from what he said he would do. And you know what? God did. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and didn't bring the destruction on them that he promised. Chapter three ends with. Here is God. Whenever God brings a word of judgment throughout the prophets in the Old Testament, again, it's never with a full stop. It's always with a semicolon. It's always with the possibility of the sentence continuing, I will judge you. And yet, if you will only turn and repent like these guys did, wow, what rejoicing when sinners turn and repent. Now, Jonah must have been very happy with that possibility. Well, actually, there was actually no rejoicing at all from Jonah. Which is weird, isn't it? Because you would think, now, come on, man, you've just had a really successful ministry trip here. And if he lived today, it would be on his Facebook page and his blog and, and his WhatsApp and uh, and on his next TV show and everything. You know, whole city and whole nation turns and responds. But he is blazing mad. <laughs> Chapter four begins by saying that this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. And he became very angry. That tells us something about Jonah's heart, something that's going on. He didn't want these people to repent at all. Actually, what he wanted was to be able to go and say, God brought judgment on them and I was the one who declared it. What God wanted was that these should repent. So he's pretty mad. And he says, so he complained to the Lord. So he goes to God and and says to him, Didn't I say this, what would happen? Isn't this why I got on a boat to head for Tarshish? Because I knew that if you sent me to Assyria, these people would repent. Why? Because you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending you. That phrase that's used so often in the Old Testament, a God, a God, gracious and compassionate, full of love and mercy and forgiving sin. And it's like he's saying, I know what you were like, God, and that's why I didn't want to go. And frankly, now, I think you'd just be better killing me. (laughs) And God turns to him and says, so why are you angry, Jonah? You know, have you any right to be angry? And he he goes off in a bit of a half, marches out of the city, finds himself a shady spot under a a big vine there. and. sits under it to protect himself from the sun. But what he finds is as the sun rose, um, a scorching east wind came down and shriveled up the vine. And, and Jonah gets gets really mad. That's not fair. That vine has died and it was giving me protection. I really would be better off dying now rather than living. 
And God says, so you're angry about a vine? Yeah, I'm angry enough to die, Lord. And then God twists it back to him. He said, listen, Jonah, you got upset because a vine died. Do you not understand my heart is so big that I get upset when people die without knowing me? And if you can be angry over a vine and upset that a vine could be lost, can you not understand how much more my heart is upset for a whole city and nation that doesn't know me? And the story ends there. It leaves it open-ended. It's as if the teller of the story has left it hanging to say, and what about you, dear listener? What about you? What are you like? Are you like a Jonah who knows we're called to go and preach to those who don't know me, but actually gets really annoyed when bad people get saved? You've lived a really good and holy life and this terrible sinner's got saved. Or do you understand how big my heart is? So the story of Jonah is still incredibly relevant and challenging for us today. We live in a world that is as godless as Nineveh in its own way. It's expressed differently, but it's just as godless. And God sends you and I into that world who thinks so differently to us and invites us to be part of his mission of reaching out to them. Will everyone respond? No, the reality is they won't. But many will. But if we, like Jonah, run in the opposite direction, who knows what we would miss out on seeing God doing in our nation at this time. If Jonah can be concerned for a vine, God is most certainly concerned for people. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.